Bless you. Welcome, 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 welcome. Glad you're here this morning. A couple of quick whole, uh, kind of housekeeping items, just as an FYI. Uh, first, this past week, my family and I stepped into our 27th year of ministry here in Ellsworth and Hancock County. Believe it or not. For which we give the Lord all the glory and praise. What a 26-year journey this has been. And the second thing, for all who were here, how many were here last Sunday? Just I want to do a little check, not that I'm keeping attendance or anything. Oh, good number. Thank you, by the way, for your attendance through the summer. It's been phenomenal. And I've been bragging to everybody of uh, how we've been doing uh, summer-wise. And uh, no summer slump or anything. And... uh, until today. And uh, yeah, it's been a great summer. It really has here at Faith Community, and we've had some wonderful, wonderful services. And uh, not the least of which was last Sunday, we heard a really well-balanced, well-delivered message by Pastor Todd. Um, the subject uh, of hell, uh, one of the most, uh, one of the favorite subjects of most people going to church. And uh, he said it was his first real attempt to answer the age-old question, how could a loving God send a person to hell, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought the way he dealt with that was just tremendous. And then he talked a lot about growing up in church. And um, I, he, we've often told our kids that they've been going to church for since nine months before they were born. And um, his record of preaching since the age of 13, I really sat there fully expecting to hear him tell about the blustery winter Sunday evening in our church back over in Nova Scotia many years ago. I was preaching fairly long series on heaven, hell, eternity, future life, etc. That particular night, I was preaching on the subject, what is hell really like? Describing it just the best I could. And it was really hammered home some graphic pictures. And uh, about halfway through my message, one of the deacons disappeared from the Congregation, and a few minutes later, he reappeared, and he came through the door at, the, at the, the doorways at the back, facing me. And I knew by the look on his face something was going on. Finally, he got enough courage to just blurt out in the middle of one of my sentences, "Pastor, we have a problem." And uh, the problem was, our church was on fire. <laughs> Honest? No, I didn't plan it. Uh, I, I like using, you know. <laughs> Visual aids, but that was not part of it. <laughs> Trust me. Uh, an aerosol can had, had blown up in, in, one of, in one of our storage rooms down in the basement and uh, really did some damage. Could have lost the whole building. It was a very stormy night. The fire department did a great job. The insurance company did a great job. But I got to tell you, it was uh, people remembered that sermon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, we've told that story over and over and over, and we've told it so many times, we even believe it now. But it really happened, and I've got a lot of witnesses to that. And what is hell really like? And uh, the church was on fire. So, um, I'm not going to go there today. (laughs) Did you ever start to read a book and uh, didn't know whether you were going to continue the book or whether it was really going to be of any interest to you or if it was going to end up the way you hoped it would or thought it would or whatever? And you thought, I'd like to know how this ends. I'd like to get to the last chapter. I'd like to get over there and see, you know, what what really happens through the story. Or since getting interested in the Bible and in Christian teaching, as many of you have in recent years, were you ever tempted to just spend all your time studying up on end times? Or or do the prophetic themes really get your attention? Um, You know, Armageddon is a word that's like just used in the... In, in the public vocabulary today, uh, judgment, how the world as we know it uh, will cease to be, the final battles, etc., 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 and all these things uh, certainly are documented in Scripture, but some people just really go to seed on that. I mean, they just spend all their time on that, and maybe you're one of those people and you've had a lot of questions. Well, today, I'm going to open a new, much-requested series that's been in the works for some time has been mentioned by many, many people around uh, the church, and I'm calling it the back of the book. It's a journey into the book of Revelation. 
And for some people, that, uh, that, that has no interest whatsoever. They, they're not. Uh, by the way, if you are interested and you have your Bible or your app, we're going to start in chapter 5 of Revelation so you can find that. If you're not sure what Revelation is, please go to the back of the book. Okay, go from the back cover forward and you'll find Revelation rather quickly. Uh, my first message in this series is uh, entitled, Think of God's Humility. And you'll see how these connect, hopefully you will, uh, in a bit. But I want to lead you into this series by asking you a series of questions. And I don't want you to answer audibly. I don't want you to respond to me uh, as such. But I want you to think of what your answer might be if I did ask you to respond to me right on the spot. First question is, does it appear to you that the world is getting better or worse? Thank you for not um, responding audibly and for following directions precisely. Does it appear to you the world is getting better or worse? Is evil winning or is good triumphing? How many of you, at least occasionally, listen to a news report? I'm not going to say uh, um, reliable news report because I don't think there is such a thing, but you listen to some news anyway, all right? So my next question is, what is your source of hope and strength in a world where evil seems often to be in control? Matter of fact, it seems to be out of control. Hmm? Do you ever think about these things? What purpose could God have for giving evil such a long leash, and why doesn't he do more to rein it in? And i got to tell you, I've asked that question to myself many times. What does it do for you to realize that God has a plan for the end of the world? Sometimes we get so wrapped up in our own little world that we forget to see the big plan that God has. What did it look like to the disciples, I wonder? You ever think of this? as they watch Jesus being crucified. And what did it look like to the devil as he watched Jesus being crucified? And, and what did it look like to God? And then another question, and then we'll move into the meaty subject here, but what is your attitude toward the future? Now, I don't necessarily mean later today or this week coming or two weeks' time or a year or 10 years or 50 years. I mean the eternal future. What's your attitude about that? Now, I want you to think about those things, and we're going to use that as a platform. We're going to use that as a foundation upon which to build as we move through different parts of the book of Revelation. So as I told you, we're going to start in chapter 5, and let me just tell you what kind of a scene you're going to come upon if you happen to just go back one chapter, and you don't need to turn there right now, but in chapter 4 of Revelation, John is trying to describe, best he can, a scene in heaven which is absolutely beyond words. He is lost for words. He tells us what he can tell us, what he can, what he can uh, translate in his own mind and write down so that we can kind of get a picture of it, but that's as far as it goes. He sees God seated on a throne, on the throne of the universe, because God is the ruler of the universe. He has the right, he has the authority, he has the power to do any and everything in the world and then ultimately to end the world. And God is surrounded by living beings that John has never seen before. And he goes into some detail to describe them. Don't be afraid of that. Um, Just watch one of these movies that's coming out these days and you'll be fine. Um, Revelation 4 and 5 will never scare you. Um, He's never seen any beings like this. He can't even adequately describe them. So you shouldn't sit there expecting me to describe them and describe what they look like and what they mean and and where they came from because John the Divine couldn't do it. And he had to use the limitations of human language and of his own experience and, and, and drawing off that, he did the best he could. 
He, then he also experienced, or he uh, witnessed, I should say, worship of the most extraordinary kind. And it just overwhelmed his senses. He just, he, he got almost into another world. Then we open chapter 5. And that's where I invited you to stop this morning because, and we're going to move through some of the Revelation 5 and 6 verses, but let me tell you, I have a host of verses if you're a Bible hunter um, that'll, that'll keep you going for quite a while. We have a great supporting cast this morning. In chapter 5, John continues his dramatic description of the scene in heaven, and it opens right there at verse 1 of John chapter 5. And here's what he says. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even... Look inside it. He sees a throne. He sees someone sitting on it whom he does not even attempt to describe. But in that hand, there is a scroll. And there's writing on both sides of the scroll. And it's sealed up with seven seals. And a call goes forth for somebody who can open this scroll. But no one is found. No one anywhere is able to answer the call. John then understands the enormous significance of the scroll, and we need to too, and this is what I want to uh, delve into this morning, and begins to weep at this terrible calamity that he's feeling. But then at that point, he's told something as we move on in Revelation 5. Look down to verse 4, and he says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So John immediately turns to this great lion that has just been described to him, but he doesn't see a lion. He sees a lamb. And not just any lamb, but one with some significant markings. And John can see blood, and John can see open wounds, and John can see things that have been inflicted on this lamb. Pick it up again. In Revelation 5, starting at verse 6, and we're going to read several verses. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe. In every language and people and nation, you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands. Listen, ten thousands times ten thousand. Do that math sometime. They encircle the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, I presume it would be. I presume it would be. They were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. 
What a, what a shock to a system it must have been for John to look for this great lion who he thought was going to rip the seals with his great claws only to see a small wounded lamb. But it's the lamb who walks up to the one seated on the throne. It's the lamb who takes the scroll. And in the subsequent chapters, as he opens the seals, scenes come forth that set in motion the events of the final days of earth's history. When these events are released by the lamb, they rush forth with power and with fury, and all the host of heaven falls on their faces as they worship the lamb. It is an incredible and an astonishing scene. Now, it's definition time because I want to talk for a moment or two about paradoxes. You've heard the word paradox. Have you ever looked up the definition? It'll be something like this. A paradox is seeming, a seemingly contradictory statement that may nonetheless be true. So here's a paradox. How can a lion be a lamb? Those two are opposites. One is the hunter. The other is the prey. One is placed in a cage with iron bars. The other is in a petting zoo. So that's a paradox. We also use the word, I think overuse it today in many circles, the word oxymoron. An oxymoron, here's our definition. And, and, and by the way, those are seemingly contradictory, uh, uh, I'll give you the definition for seemingly contradictory terms that are actually combined. And as a, an English major, I got to tell you, of course, I'm very finicky about this stuff, but some of the, the language, the way people use the language, misuse it today, just, just, just grates me. But anyway, I'll get over it. Pray for me. You know, but here's an, let me, let me, let me, talk, let me give you some examples of an oxymoron. The one I love probably around here the most is jumbo shrimp. <laughs> Think about that. It, which is it? Huh? Uh, another favorite of mine is fresh frozen food. Mm-hmm. Uh, the news media, they talk about a holy, and the historians talk about a holy war. When did we ever have one of those? Some people talk about cool heat. I think the all-time greatest grading for me is a near miss. Can anybody stand up in this room today and define for me what is a near miss? There's a very, 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 very easy one-word definition. Anybody know what it is? It's a hit. It's an accident. But what is a near miss? I, don't, I, I had a near accident. I had a near calamity. I had a near disaster. But a near miss, you'd be thankful for, I would think. Or a deafening silence. And I'll give you another one. A lion-like lamb. That's an oxymoron. Those terms... They don't belong together except in heaven. Here, the lion is the lamb. His power was found in his death. Because with his death, listen to this, he purchased the souls of people and he was thereby made worthy to open the scroll. So you ask, and rightly so, what is the meaning of all this strange imagery in the Revelation. And it introduces the unleashing of end-time events. With at least three major areas that I want to touch on this morning, especially for the benefit of you note-takers. The first thing is that we can rest in the fact that God's strength is disguised as weakness. I touched on this in a message not too long ago, but I'd like to expand on it. The secret to God's great strength is is in his apparent weakness. Look at the Lamb of God, if you will, dying on the cross of Calvary. 
Was there ever, I ask you, was there ever any greater appearance of weakness on the part of God? Was there ever anything that looked so hopeless as that scene? And we're jaded, and I'll tell you why, because we live on the resurrection side of Calvary, and we really, unless it's brought to our attention, we've never had to think about that. Because we know how that turned out, and we know what was happening there. But if you could just dismiss that from your mind for a few seconds and think about that picture. If that wasn't the picture of ultimate weakness, I don't know what is. They taunted him. They ridiculed him. They said, come down from the cross. If you're the son of God, you're making all these claims, Matthew 27, 40. Here's the irony of all that. He was totally able to come down from that cross. One of the great songs of the church years ago was, uh, he could have called 10,000 angels. And I've never been comfortable with that song. It's a pretty song, and it sings well, but I can never figure out the theology of that song. Why would he need 10,000 angels? If he wanted to come off that cross, he simply would have walked off of it. And yes, he could have called 10,000 angels, but they'd probably be flying around the cross saying, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? (laughs) They didn't have the power. He had the power. He chose not to come off the cross. Uh, I'm okay with that. Huh? I'm happy about that. I'm not being sadistic here. I mean, I'm just saying... Thank God he didn't come off the cross. Thank God he showed how much he cared for you and for me. I mean, what God was doing was the most powerful act that he would ever perform, and and I would argue that to my death, greater than the creation of the world, greater than the bringing of the world to an end. Christ's redemptive act act on the cross was God at work in his finest moment. This was the greatest hour of all time. The whole world changed because of that moment in time. His strength was hidden, but it was God's most powerful moment. And there's a lesson there. In this humble act of God, the devil was shamed. He was robbed of his power. He was declared defeated and a loser forever. We will never know this side of heaven what terrible struggles were going on, but there were many in the spiritual world, in that spiritual Uh, climate between, let's call it Palm Sunday and Easter morning. But one thing we know is that the lamb became a lion. We keep wanting to have displays of power and, and have people see that we're on the winning side because that's what's so important. But God is content with the appearance of weakness. Read your Bible. Read it carefully. Study the stories of many of the characters of Scripture. His purpose in this is profound. What if God and God's people always won? What if God always triumphed and doing right always paid tremendous dividends and everyone would flock to God and everybody would follow him and we'd all just do this by rote. We'd be kind of like God's puppets and people would do the, the, those things because they'd benefit from them personally. That would be a benefit to them and they'd probably get the glory for it. And people also want to be on the winning side. They don't want to be on the losing side. They don't want to be on the side that, that isn't going to make it. And it makes them feel important. So God could actually win the world over through a consistent display of power. But where would the hearts of people be? Would they love God for himself? Or would they love God for his power and his acts and what he can do to benefit them? Would they love him or would they fear him? Would they want God to use their lives? Or would they want to use God for their own purposes and for their own advancement? Now, on the other side of this coin, let's flip it. What about a God who appears? Can I underscore that word? Who appears to be weak. What if it looks like, and this is bringing us back to some of the questions that I posed for you before I started to preach this message. 
What if it looks like evil is actually winning? What, what does it look like? Look out at our world today in the 21st century. What, 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 what does it look like if it seems like most people are on evil side, on the devil's side? And, and, and what if people who follow Christ and name the name of Christ because they love him with all their hearts, what if they're ridiculed? What if they're tortured? What if they're persecuted in inhumane ways? What if, what if their heads and bodies are separated? Uh, is anybody going to think about this? What if it becomes a disadvantage, the day's coming, my friend, to be a Christian? I didn't say to be called a Christian. I didn't say to say you're a Christian. What about the day when it becomes a total disadvantage to be a Christian? We need to think about these things. What then? Then only the people who truly love God, following him for the right reasons and living for him, only those who love him for who he is, rather than what they can get out of him, will dare to be called by his name. Only those who love the truth, regardless of how weak or irrelevant is made to appear by others, and by the world in general, only those people will follow the truth. Let me remind you of this. It does not take courage to follow what everyone else believes and does. There's absolutely zero courage necessary to do that. It takes courage And I know true believers are going, to come, are going to come to the forefront when I say this. It takes courage to follow the truth. Look, when others don't understand, and when others belittle what you believe, and when others just cast you aside because you believe, and when others categorize or classify you as something less in their opinion. It takes courage to do the right thing. It takes courage to do the right thing even if you're going to be punished for it, whether it's at work or at school or in society or in a relationship or in your family. It doesn't matter. It takes courage to do the right thing, even if you're going to be punished for it. It takes courage to stand up for what is right. When Listen, when everyone else, if they were honest, thinks you're wrong. We're talking real courage now. These are the kind of people God is looking for. These are the kind of people who will be called, Scripture says, his followers. I mean, anybody can take the easy road. I used to tell youngsters this all the time in school chapels, that even a dead fish can swim downstream. Yeah. Doesn't take any kind of courage, doesn't take any kind of strength, doesn't take any kind of power to just go along to get along. I think we need more teaching in this area in the Christian life today. I think, uh, I, I th- I think it's time that we get back to this because we're getting to some critical stages in history. There, there, there are the kind of people that God wants to be as followers, as I said, anybody can take the easy road. And, 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 and let me add this. You, you don't have to be much. You, you don't have to have much. You don't, you don't have to be made of much to just follow the easy road. Jesus said this in, in Matthew seven thirteen. He said, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through that gate. Now, think of God's humility 
as he tries to do his work through us. Think of God's humility as he decides to come to earth to take on himself. If you're a person that likes to meditate, this will hold you for the best part of a day. To take on himself the form of a man. Think about that. From the glory of heaven, To this. (laughs) Think about that. What power is hidden in his apparent weakness? You know, Isaiah prophesied this years before Jesus came on the scene. And in Isaiah 53, 7, he said, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Such willingness to submit himself to weakness. And let me just add, and yet what power? What power? Now think of God's humility as he tries to to do his work through us. Now let's face it, we get a bit uncomfortable that Jesus asks us to join him in his weakness. We, 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 we would rather be on that team, uh, we'd rather be on the, the B team. We'll take a pass on that first one, and isn't there another team where we can just be with God as he displays his power and his strength and his glory and his awesomeness, if that's a word? And we get a little uncomfortable when Jesus says, well, I'm calling you to identify with my weakness. I'm calling you to see who I am and what I've done. And in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, here's what he said. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Hmm. Now, that's different, isn't it? He often asks us, to, <laughs> if you've ever noticed this in your life or not, but he's often, he often asks us to do the opposite of the way we think it ought to be, or listen to this, the way the people of the world think it should be. Here's what Jesus further said in Matthew 23. Note takers, I hope you're doing a good job. I'm getting tired, but I hope you're still going strong. 11 and 12. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves, what? will be exalted. Hmm. Strength. That, you say, well, how would I paraphrase uh, those, that verse, those two verses? Strength through weakness. Sometimes we just complicate things, don't we? We try to read into Scripture things that aren't even there. But that's so simple. He said that we were not to resist evil with force, and he backed it up in his own life. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 21, 22, and 23, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth when they hurled their insults at him. And... and, uh, Uh, He did not retaliate, and when he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You know, the appearance appearance of weakness is, I I, I don't know what it is with us, but we think, well, if it looks weak, God's not going to be interested in that. Because God's all about strength and power. And if it has a... If, if it even has a notion of an appearance of weakness and frailty, uh, God, God's probably not, not, not going to be very drawn to that. Hmm. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He said we're to resist evil with force. He backed it up with his own life. And uh, the appearance of weakness, is, it's not a concern for God. For, 
For that's his strength. That's what shows you how strong this God is. God is not interested in appearances because God is only interested in reality. And the reality is this. Let me just remind you. He rules the universe. If you have doubts about that, then you have a reason to doubt your own salvation. Say, well, I know some people who don't, you know, they, they don't believe that. They don't think that he rules the universe. Well, let me just tell you something. That doesn't change the fact that he rules the universe. <laughs> He's not checking with any of your friends to see if that's okay to say. God rules the universe. Amen? And he doesn't much care who thinks what of that statement. And if you believe that, you have to believe my next statement, which is then he has the right to bring this world to its appointed end. Hello? Seems to me he breathed it into existence. So he'll snuff it out when time comes. Oh, I know people who don't believe that. Well, I'm not asking them to believe it, but I'm just asking them to get their heart right real soon because people are going to start believing by the hundreds. Some for the right reasons, some not. And the Apostle Paul, who we often listen to Paul, don't we? We often listen. When Paul's speaking anywhere in Scripture, we're like, oh, that's, the, that's Paul. He, he, he's our master teacher. He's written a good portion, most, of the New Testament. Let's listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 1. 25 through 29. He says, For the foolishness of God, I love this, is wiser than man's wisdom. Hello. God's foolishness is wiser than the greatest of man's wisdom. I just, I, I just love that. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. This is Paul speaking. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may ever boast before him. I got one welling up inside. It's about ready to come out, so fasten your seatbelt, because when it does, I'll probably blow you off that chair. I've got to tell you, that excites me. His foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. His weakness is stronger than... Oh, man, now. Man is so superiorly superior in intellectual... Uh, uh, advancement and, and, and scientific advance, and we're just so smart. You know, the smarter we get, yeah, no, really, the, the, the smarter we get, the more we retrace the steps back to God. I, I've just been amazed in the last decade, the number of worldwide scientific announcements that have been made that people have been debating for a couple hundred years, and finally, they're saying, well, well, maybe this theory doesn't work. Maybe that's not really the way it happened. Maybe there was, I'll never say God, there was some superpower or super being somewhere that might have been involved, you suppose? Didn't take you long to figure it out. But here's why it took you so long. is because God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisest wisdom. Now here's the second thing that I want to zero in on for just a minute today. Knowing the facts as we know them. Studying the back of the book as we're going to. We can rest in this fact that God has a plan. Are you glad today as you sit here that God has a plan? Yeah, yeah. It's important to understand the significance. You say, what's the most important object lesson in this Revelation chapter 5 and the verses you've been reading? Uh, Easy to tell you that one. The scroll. The scroll. That's the plan, my friend. 
There is a scroll. There is a plan. It's been written down by the hand of God. And the plan is being and will be fulfilled. I like that. God has a plan. Just keep saying that to yourself all day. God has a plan. And vigilantly carrying out that plan. Uh, Remember this. As you read the newspaper, as you listen to the latest news report, as you get all the incoming breaking news from the Middle East, etc., and the Far East, and all the other Easts, just remember this, please. Please remember this. History is heading somewhere. This thing is not happening in a vacuum. It's marching forward to an eventual end. The scroll is written. Here's what it says in Revelation chapter 5. The scroll is written, do you remember the words? On both sides, from end to end. You know what that means? There's no room for anybody to add to the plan of God. That just settles it for me. That's just so complete. Let me, just, uh, let, let me just review for you one other faith that contrasts with this. The Hindu faith doesn't believe that there's any direction to the history of the world. Hindus believe that life continues forever as it is through cycles. On and on it goes, over and over, life goes on, ad infinitum, no beginning, no end, blah, blah, blah. That's the reason they believe in reincarnation. Because no one ever really dies, they just reappear in a different form. You come back as a flower, or a butterfly, or a ray of sunshine, or a hailstorm, or something. And i got to tell you, with a faith like that, there is no purpose in life. There's no direction in life. There's no alpha and omega in life. The Bible teaches that God has a plan, and I've chosen to believe it. I hope you have too. And his plan for the world is revealed in the book of Genesis, throughout the gospel record, and now ultimately in the book of Revelation. The Bible is clear about what the plan is. And God says in, the, in, uh, in Ephesians uh, chapter, where are we going? Ephesians chapter, I'll get it here in a minute. One, nine through t- uh, 12. Is that, is that where we are? He made known to us the mystery of, the will, of his will according to, to his good pleasure. He, he didn't have to check with us to see if we were ready for this or whether we wanted this or whether it sounded okay with us or is this according to our time schedule. That's what I like about it. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. It's not our plan, it's his plan. It's not our deal, it's his deal. It's not our scroll, it's his scroll. It's not our handwriting, it's his handwriting which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when at times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and earth under the one head, even Christ. In him, we were also chosen. In him, we were also chosen. Having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Here's God's great plan for the world. That your life will result in the praise of God's glory. That is precisely why you are right now feet on the ground on planet Earth. I know, 16 other people are trying to tell you what the plan of God is for your life. I just told you what the plan of God is for your life. You don't need anything more. It 
It's that your life will result in the praise of God's glory. And I can prove that in Scripture. He has formed the world for a purpose. He's going to bring about the end to the present world system. So whatever you're going to do, do quickly. So that the validity of your life and his plan might be seen by all. Now put this in your notes. God will win in the end because there is a scroll. Matter of fact, it just hasn't been announced yet. He's already won. The devil hasn't even realized it, although I think in my heart of hearts he has. That the game, he's still playing it, but the game's really over. You know how they say it ain't over till it's over? Well, Mr. Devil, it's over. It's over because God has a plan. The plan is in his hand. I spent a few years of my life as a player, a few more years as a coach in various sports, and I want to just tell you something that I know. This is from personal experience. No team ever goes on the field or on the court or on the ice or wherever they do their thing without a game plan. If they do, they're silly. They're foolish. They're destined to lose. They learn the fundamentals of the sport. They watch films. They study the tactics of the opponent. They figure out how to counteract certain maneuvers of the other team. If the other team tries their usual game plan, they're going to go with plan A today. But if they try something else and get cute, then we're going to plan B. We have that developed. We know who's going to play what slot. We know what your assignment is, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't know, get on the bench till you figure it out. Sometimes we'll even double team a player or we'll, we'll have a special attention to certain players. They might try an end run and, and do something totally different, but they always have a plan. And if ever a team just wandered out on the field, oh, a nice day for a game, we should have one. Just to see how things would go. And if you've ever been to any kind of a professional sport, you're taken by the fact that an hour, an hour and a half, sometimes even three hours before a game, many of the athletes are out on the court, on the field, wherever. You say, what are they, just wasting their energy? No, no. They're not just honing their skill. They're watching, they're watching intently with the other team. You ever go to a basketball game at that level, and if the coach is even down there, usually it's the assistant coaches, they're not watching their team's drills. They're standing at their bench, and they're watching the other team. And they're watching who can do what, who can't do what, who's strong to the left, who's strong to the right, who's good at passing, who's not who can handle the ball, who's kind of butterfingered, you know. You don't just wander out on the field and say, oh, I guess we'll play, we'll see how things go. Because they're certainly going to lose. Now, let's bring that into the spiritual. God has a plan. God knows the opponent perfectly. He ought to. And he will use his own game plan against them, and he will win in the end. You can clap, I'm not done, but it's okay. Because I want you to clap when I'm done. Not for me. But the third fact that ties into what I'm saying today is that you can rest in the fact that God is in control. You can rest in that fact. God's humility is born out of confidence. Let me repeat that. God's humility is born out of confidence. You can be humble when you know you're going to win in the end. You don't have to be arrogant and try to prove something and stuff something down somebody's throat and beat them up and make them believe what you believe. If you just know you're going to win in the end, you can be humble about it. You don't have to overpower everybody and everything. Sometimes we look around at the world and it seems like evil's winning. Would you say? Yeah, you do. You look at the world today. I mean, I look back 40 years even. I, I look back when, when I first started preaching. I got to tell you, everything is different. Everything is different. If I brought out a couple of my messages from back in the mid-1970s, and started preaching them here, you would go out of here saying, what 
planet does that guy live on? And by the way, a lot of churches in America are still preaching the 1970s sermons, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with them if they're scripturally based, but they have no relevance to today's society, and they're putting people to sleep and keeping them asleep until they drop off the, off the chair and die, and then they lock the church door because nobody else wants to come and hear a 1970s message, not even warmed up. You look around the world today, it looks like evil's winning. It looks like we're on the losing side can be scary. It doesn't have to be, but when you just look at it at face value. But let me just tell you something. We have the scroll, and we know the end of this game. And we know that God is in control, and appearances are deceiving, and things are not always what they appear to be, and the lion is a lamb, but the lamb is also a lion. Remember the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane? Sure you do. The guards came to get Jesus, and they were armed with swords and clubs. And before anybody can even say anything, Peter is so irate, he draws his sword and he cuts off the ear of one of them. But Jesus said to him in Matthew 26, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die. And they'll die by the sword. Don't you think I can call on my father and he will at once put up my disposal? Legions of angels. Maybe that's where the song came from. Jesus was completely in control, even in that situation. He knew what was going to be happening over the next several hours. Even though he allowed it to appear that others were in control, even control of him, and even in control of his misery, or whatever was going to happen, or it even looked like they might even be in control of history, wasn't going to happen. Um, Some of you know this, a lot of you don't. I'm a huge boxing fan. I, I love boxing. I only ever fought one time, and uh, they had the most beautiful birds singing. <laughs> Couldn't figure out why there would be birds at a boxing match. But anyway. Um, matter of fact, I have the tapes of all the great heavyweight title fights of the late 60s, 70s, into the 80s. October the 30th, never forget it. I've forgotten a lot of things. I'll forget what your name is after you've told me 40 times. On October 30th, 1974, Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, and George Foreman squared off in the boxing ring in Zaire, Africa. Ali dubbed it, or it might have been Howard Cassell, I'm not sure who, the rumble in the jungle. Just that title gets me excited. Matter of fact, if Dave Clark was here, I'd remind him that we went years ago down to Lewiston to watch Joey Gamash win the World Lightweight Boxing Championship. What a thrill that was that night. You're all really riding with me now, aren't you? (laughs) I wonder what it would take. Let me just tell you, how many have ever heard of George Foreman and he uses grill every other weekend? Yeah, okay. Wonderful man, wonderful man. He's a preacher, you know. I don't blame that on him. But anyway, um, George Foreman was a <laughs> he was a monster of a man. I mean, he was a he was the most powerful thing to ever step into the ring. Certainly in modern times. I don't know that he could have beaten Marciano, but then we'd get into a little debate here. <laughs> he was the hardest puncher in heavyweight history. No question about it. There were a lot of hard punches, but some couldn't take a punch. Well, Muhammad Ali did something in that fight that night that no other fighter had ever dared to try, for obvious reasons. When he went into the, the ring, and early on in the fight, he, he could see where it was coming, and there was just one of these bombastic punches coming, one after another. And he put his arms up like in front of his body, to cover his face and his head. And he leaned back against the ropes. He had phenomenal balance. He was so, so athletic. You know, he won the, the, the gold medal in, in, uh, in the Olympics, and, and just phenomenal. And he'd go back against the ropes, and he'd allow George Foreman to keep punching. And George Foreman pummeled him 
all through the first round, all through the second round, all through the third round, all through the fourth round, all through, I can see it, the fifth round. It looked like each round was just the one they had just played. The sixth round, the seventh round. We're into the eighth round of the World Heavyweight Boxing Championship. Everybody in the world's watching, and I know all of you did. <laughs> Not. It looked like, I mean, this is the strongest boxer in history. He's beating on this young contender until he, 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 he just kept beating on him. Now we're down to 30 seconds left in the three-minute round eight. And when the right moment came, Ali bounced off the ropes I just watched this again a couple days ago. I had to just, whew. I was going to show it for you, but I thought you'd get too excited. He bounced off the ropes and he knocked out George Foreman, basically with one right hand punch. I mean, he had everything in that punch, everything. Beautiful punch. Matter of fact, he sent George Foreman into early retirement. He never recovered from that. Now, that bouncing back and forth on the ropes, off the ropes, on the ropes, off the ropes. Bobbing and weaving, just protecting his face, protecting his head. I mean, he was way behind on points. He could never have pulled that fight out, not by the eight, end of the eighth round. But he had a word for that. He had a definition for that. Muhammad Ali called that the rope-a-dope technique. Because one time he came off those ropes, it was goodnight, George. And the place went crazy. Even though it looked like he was losing the fight. Did you understand that? And he's losing badly now. He was in control the whole time. He took all those punches. No wonder he's got so many brain issues right now. And I say that respectfully, but he does. Anybody that could... Just that one fight alone would have, like, knocked your brain somewhere other than inside your skull. I don't know where it ended up. But he won that fight even though it looked like he was losing badly. He was in control. He took all those punches. Are you listening, Christian? Because he knew he would deliver the final blow. I'm just using this as an analogy. I'm not making God the next heavyweight champion of the world, even though he is. God is using the rope-a-dope technique on this world of evil today. Stop worrying! If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, stop worrying. The fight's already over. We know whose arm is going to be lifted high. When the devil and the Antichrist amass all their armies, and that hasn't even started yet. They're just talking all this silly talk. And they spent themselves fighting the Lord and fighting Israel. And I get excited. My heart beats even faster than it's supposed to. And I've got AFib too. But you know what? Uh, when they say, well, yeah, next thing we're going to do is well, death to America and we're going to wipe Israel off the map. I'm like, whoa, whoa. Whoa, the end of the fight's coming. The knockout punch is about ready to be delivered because you are not going to knock Israel off the face of the earth ever, 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 ever. God's people, listen, 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 will always be God's people. God's not getting new people. God's not making any more of those. God's people are God's people. Amen? Amen. Now you got me all excited. I don't know where I am. Now when it looks... I never, I never do. It looks as though the kingdom of God is on the ropes. Remember, the final blow is going to be coming soon. Might be the seventh inning. It might be the seventh round. Might be the eighth. Might be the tenth. I don't know when. Just when it looks like evil's going to win. I knew we shouldn't have done this. God's stepping. God's going to step in. When he comes through those ropes, that one's over. Just, just, just when it looks as though evil's going to have the final word, God is going to destroy that word with his own word. Because he owns the scroll. And the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 7 and 8, For the secret power of law, lawlessness is already at work. No kidding. But the one who now holds it back 
will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow, knockout punch, with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Wow. We usually think of the imagery of a small young lamb to be just harmless. But let's come back to Revelation. I started there. I'm going to finish there in chapter 6 now, starting at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They call, this is is when the powerful Lamb of God reveals himself to the world. They call to the mountains and the rocks. They call the mountains and the rocks. They're talking to the rocks. You'd say, oh boy, evil, looks like they're winning. Looks like they're going to win this whole thing. Looks like we're gone. We don't have a chance. We're on the losing side. Listen, I want to tell you how desperate it's going to be when Jesus reveals himself. These people who think they're in control today, they're going to be going to the mountain to talk to the rocks. Yeah, no wonder you laugh. That's desperate, friend. That's desperate. Now, I'm reading from the Bible. I'm not making this up. And here's what they're going to say to <laughs> this. Jesus told John the divine, he said, write this stuff down. And I'm glad he did because he knew it was going to be the only record we had. So he, he writes down, he says, and by the way, when they go over to the mountains, like when they come up Cadillac Mountain, and they, and they go over to that other one up in northern Maine, I don't name it because it's going to be the name of the new national park. And um, how many are in favor of the national park? All right, get out. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, they're they're going to be saying to Mount, uh, Cadillac Mountain, uh, 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 please fall down and bury us. Please, please break apart and cover us. Is this says, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? You know the answer to that question. So we usually think of something just a little bit less powerful. Boy, when the Lamb opens the fifth seal, we see some things happen. The Lamb of God conquers all the powers of the earth. They're going to prefer death to facing the lamb. So we can't even stand to look at the lamb, let alone to, to face the wrath of the lamb. Please, rocks and mountains, fall on us. We need a huge rock slide now. We prefer death. We don't want to face what's coming. That's desperation beyond desperation. The lamb of God is going to conquer And they're going to prefer that death. And when that happens, God's going to share. This is why I'm so glad to tell you that that part of the story doesn't end there. He's going to share his kingdom with us. Better days ahead, folks. Huh? Huh? Not only does God ask us to share in his weakness, but he will ask us to share in his strength. For the Bible, again, we're going way over to 17. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14 says, They will wage war against the Lamb, but, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with Him will be His call. That's you. And chosen, that's you. And faithful followers. Hopefully, that's all of us. Wow. Wow. I want to say to you today, the struggle is worth it. Your battle may be long. It may be weary. For some people, it's not as long and it's not as weary. Just in the last 10 days, I've attended funerals for friends of mine in the early 50s. And I'm thinking, what's wrong with this picture? I'm saying that to say, at the best, life is short. But it may be long and weary and troublesome, and it may appear you're losing. Keep leaning on God. Keep leaning on God. And while this may appear to to others to be your weakness, it's really your strength. 
and you will triumph. Here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 10. He said, that's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, say the last words with me, then I am strong. Wow. I guess I could say then that the power of evil is really only an illusion because it's so counterfeit. And here's what the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 17. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He'll use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders and serve the lie in all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion that they will believe the lie so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. That's how you're saved. He called you to this through our gospel. (laughs) that you might share in the glory. There it is. Here's your purpose for life, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word or mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. So think of God's humility. His weakness is our strength. We're in. The eighth round is over. Our dear friend George is on the mat, not to rise again. We're in. The back of the book. And the lion has roared. And the lamb wins. And I think we ought to rise up and give glory to the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Will you join me? Will you join me? Thank you. You may remain standing. All of you who stood with me, thank you. Some of you are not able to, but I saw you standing in your heart. I saw you standing there praising God and giving him the glory. And for that, I certainly thank you and praise him. God bless you. Thank you for listening. Let's continue our worship of the great Lamb of God.